This is a 720 to go podcast from Chicago's WGN Radio 720. This podcast is sponsored by ADM. As one of the world's largest agricultural processors, ADM is uniquely positioned to serve the world's growing needs for abundant food and renewable energy. ADM. When it comes to the business of America's farmland, you need the information from the people who know it best. That's why we bring you AgriCast with Orion Samuelson and Max Armstrong. And thank you and good morning to you, Roger. 28 degrees on my thermometer here in Huntley, Illinois. And uh, I'll tell you what, Max Armstrong made the right choice this week because he covered the Commodity Classic down in Orlando, Florida. And I think Florida was one of the areas that had pretty decent weather for uh, the past week or so. And uh, I think we have come to the end of the big agricultural conventions because farmers are going to be ready to get back to work and out there tilling the fields and planting the crops. And so uh, they'll be heading home from that convention in Orlando. But uh, the uh, Prairie Farmer magazine announced the names of the four master farmers for Illinois this week, and we'll be checking in with Holly Spangler just a few minutes to get the names of the four new class of master farmers. But uh, before we get to that, let's check in with the man who made the right choice. Good morning, Max Armstrong. Well, good morning, Orion. I believe it has been about 23 years now since they started this event called Commodity Classic an annual gathering of grain farmers, the National Corn Growers Association, the American Soybean Association, the National Sorghum Producers, and the National Association of Wheat Growers. Then, the last couple of years also, they've included, with that, the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. This year, they gathered in Orlando here, and of course, the economics could be much better than they are right now. Uh, the corn market is a perfect example. I visited with the president of the National Corn Growers Association, Lynn Crisp. His farm is near Hastings, Nebraska. We talked about the supplies of corn in the world right now, the fact that uh, they are still rather burdensome. The carryover numbers are on the high end of manageable. Uh, they weigh on the market and... and uh, as long as we have an abundant supply, the market's not going to give us the kind of price that we are looking for. But uh, demand continues to go up. Uh, production continues to go up as long as the weather cooperates. And, uh, you know, farmers are just uh, looking and preparing for another year. High yields were very important to growers last year, and many of them were able to achieve that. Uh, you think that underscores the importance for good corn yields in 2019? Uh, it, it does, and specifically in our area, we've had three years in a row of uh, really good production, and it's those extra bushels that have uh, kept some, you know, from just being in real trouble. And uh, so production does play a part of it. You know, uh, marketing our grain uh, is the toughest thing that we do as farm operators uh, getting a, a price that we really need in order to keep our farms economically viable. I suppose that's one aspect of this annual event, the information that is shared, the effort to make growers better at what they are doing, and that includes improving their marketing skills. Uh, every year the 
Commodity Classic has excellent information in their breakout sessions uh, uh, that uh, attendees can uh, take in then depending upon where their interest lies. And uh, it prepares them uh, for making choices in that technology arena then as to what can be applied to their farm to make them more uh, effective, more efficient. But uh, it's always a, a push associated with what does that technology cost. And uh, so lots of good things uh, to be seen and viewed on the trade show. We've got an excellent trade show floor going on with the Commodity Classic this year, too. In terms of the demand for corn, how optimistic are you? Taking a look at the domestic scene and then the global demand for corn or corn products. I'm a farmer, so I'm uh, eternally optimistic, you know, about the opportunities in agriculture. But the uh, fact of the matter is uh, we're outpacing our demand uh, ability uh, to find those markets then with our production capability as long as weather cooperates. And uh, that's just the nature of it. I've been in farming for 40-some years, and... Uh, in south central Nebraska, we have irrigation so we can mitigate uh, the drought situation. But over those 40 years, the years that uh, we did well economically was a year where supply was pulled down by some widespread drought across the country. And, and that seems to be uh, kind of uh, an unusual thing to be talking about. But uh, over a 40-year career, that's just the way that it's been. That does beg the question. After three very good years, successive years of strong corn yields, is that sustainable? It probably is. We're, you know, outside of our window as far as uh, the increased production capability and being above trend line. You know, five going on six years in a row in this particular situation is also an unprecedented situation that I've been in over my 40 year career. That has never happened before. And so, um, it's a struggle. Uh, our members uh, talk to us all the time about uh, the, the pressure that's on their farming operations due to these prices relative to cost. And uh, we're doing absolutely everything that we can as the National Corn Growers Association to increase demand. You know, and it's demand, it's demand, it's demand because we've got to find uh, the appropriate markets then for the products that we're growing. Lynn Crisp from Hastings, Nebraska, president of the National Corn Growers Association. One of the frequent topics, as you can imagine here, Orion, especially talking to corn growers, was that attack on corn sweeteners waged by Bud Light Beer during the Super Bowl broadcast a few weeks ago. And uh, the folks at Miller Coors, who proudly proclaim that they do use cordon sweeteners, have hastened to take advantage of the situation. We talked with Adam Collins, Vice President of Communication with Miller Coors, and he pointed out to me. And the irony of Bud Light's attack is that it's not actually in the final product, in the beer you drink. It's used in the fermentation process to, to help get the uh, yeast uh, active. Um, but regardless, we're, we're thrilled. We're happy to have this conversation. We're happy to be here with, uh, with farmers from across the country. We've been proud of the partnership that we've uh, really built upon with uh, National Corn Growers uh, Association and organizations throughout agriculture because we believe in our products. And we're so thankful for the farmers who make them possible. Were you a little surprised in the farmer reaction how vocal and how strident farmers became in defense of their product? Well, you know, farmers are are, are 
proud. They're proud. It's their livelihood. It's 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 not just a job. It is a lifestyle. And so uh, I think what I was more surprised by was that Bud Light would spend $20 million in one night to attack our beers and to attack American crops at the same time. And I think if you look at their sales over the last few weeks since the Super Bowl ads run, Bud Light's sales are down. Miller Lights are up slightly. Uh, Coors Light's flat. Um, and I think that that's a reflection of the people don't want the negativity. Beer is supposed to make people happy and bring people together. And certainly you're not shying away from uh, making that connection with the agriculture community now. Uh, not one bit. Not one bit. Like I said, we're, we're very proud of, uh, of uh, our farmers uh, who help make our beers possible. We're happy to tell that story all day long. The Miller Coors brands have a rich heritage going way back, correct? Uh, without question. I mean, Frederick Miller uh, in Milwaukee, Adolph Coors in, in Golden, Colorado, some incredible iconic American brands that are made possible by uh, iconic American crops. Adam Collins is his name. He's vice president of communications for Miller Coors. And if the name is a little bit familiar, Adam Collins served as the director of communications for Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel for a period of about four years. Orion, a great gathering here of farmers who produce corn, soybeans, sorghum, and wheat and the companies that serve them in a big trade show at the event called Commodity Classic. Many, many people came up to us to say hello to you and to extend a greeting to you here in Orlando, Florida. Thank you very much, Max, and thank you for the greetings from the producers who joined you at Commodity Classic. Fascinated by the beer conversation, I wonder if Bud Light ever imagined that those commercials during the, well, I can't say the event, the big event, the big Sunday night event, but uh, I wonder if they ever thought about the storm that they would raise with those commercials uh, mentioning, not verbally, but uh, on the screen, uh, the corn syrup line. So anyway, thanks to Max for checking in with us from uh, Orlando, Florida. And I think this is the end of the series of agricultural conventions, the big ones, Farm Bureau, Cattlemen, and uh, the grain and uh, sorghum producers. And so now we'll start tuning up the equipment, getting ready to hit the fields if and, well, we will. I shouldn't say if, when we finally get weather that'll be uh, favorable for planting. But uh, talking to several farmers this week, uh, particularly uh, to the north and west of us in Chicago, uh, up into Minnesota and Wisconsin and the Dakotas, there is a lot of snow on the ground that has to melt, and you know where it'll go. It'll go into the creeks and the rivers, and uh, we can expect to see Missouri and Mississippi and Ohio River all hitting flood levels as the snow melt continues. And then how much rain will we get along with that? So it's going to be, again, a challenging time, as it always is, to get the crop in the ground. But final word is we do get the crop in the ground and quickly when finally the weather uh, shapes up to, to help us along. Big event for Prairie Farmer Magazine this week, and uh, we'll be back to talk about that when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. 
It was a big day for Prairie Farmer Magazine yesterday as they announced the four Illinois producers who will be honored as 2019 Master Farmers at Prairie Farmer's annual event in Springfield, Illinois. We're joined this morning by Holly Spangler, who is the editor of Prairie Farmer. And the reason I'm talking to you briefly now is to hear the names of the four pronounced correctly, because I'd probably mispronounce them. So who are the four master farmers? Absolutely, Orion. Yes, we are excited to announce our four master farmers this year. They are, in alphabetical order, Martin Marr from Jacksonville. We have Jim Robbins from Piatone, Bill Soss from Lincoln, and Boyd Schaffelberger from Greenville. And they will be honored at the the annual Master Farmers Award ceremony when and where? Absolutely. On Wednesday, March 13th in Springfield, Illinois, we have a really nice awards luncheon and bring everybody in and invite all the past Master Farmers and everybody's family and friends to come and recognize them. And it's just a really nice day to kind of reflect on all the good things in, in agriculture. I've attended a few of those, of course, but uh, won't be able to be there for this year's event. Let's talk about the history of the Master Farmer, because it started a long time ago, didn't it? It did, it did. In 1925, the editor started uh, the Master Farmer program, and the idea was, you know, to recognize farmers um, and give them that sense of, and this was their quote, pride and permanence. Um, you know, and honor farmers for outstanding work just like you would in any other field. And so they started that in 1925. I've got a picture on my wall here in the office, you know, of, of this group of master farmers and, and, and the whole audience, you know, there in downtown Chicago at a hotel and, um, you know, very different looking crowd from today, um, but just a really neat award. And they And they kept that going, you know, up through the Depression. They did kind of take a pause then, you know, that feeling like, you know, it, it was hard to sort of celebrate and, and recognize when, when so many people were just trying to hang on. And then we brought it back in 1968 and have uh, recognized Master Farmers every year since then. It is indeed a great program. How many producers have been honored during the lifetime of this career? That's a great question. Since 1968, we've had 347. That counts this year's as well. And then let's talk about Prairie Farmer Magazine, because I grew up on the Wisconsin Dairy Farm reading it as a kid, and it's been around, well, is it the longest publication for agriculture? It is, it is. Actually, we are the oldest continually published magazine in the, in the United States, not, not just within agriculture, uh, since 1841. And I think we should mention the sponsor of your Master Farmer program, because I know they contribute to it as well. They do. We are very grateful to Growmark for their sponsorship of the Master Farmer Program. They, you know, they're they're all over the state, and they they know these farmers well, and they really support recognizing farmers like this. And it's been my pleasure to know a lot of them as well. So, as I said, we'll go into more detail on the four master farmers for this year a little bit later in the, uh, well, I guess winter, spring sometime. And (laughs) thank you for joining us here uh, this morning. You bet. Thank you so much, Orrin. Appreciate it. Holly Spangler, editor of Prairie Farmer Magazine. 
We talked earlier this morning about the uh, situation with the melting snow and spring rains and all that sort of thing. And uh, it's happening right now. Flooding and ice buildup on key parts in the Midwest have stalled the movement of barges that supply export terminals at the Gulf of Mexico with grain and soybeans. One lock on the Ohio River became impassable last week, halting vessels moving to and from the Mississippi River. Probably that will continue until at least March 9th. One cash grain trader said it is a logistical nightmare with this lock being closed and the high water at the Gulf, high water at Cairo, Illinois. It's just going to be that way for the next couple of weeks. And so cash premiums for crops delivered by barge to New Orleans, which is the country's busiest grain port, have already scaled to their highest point in months, making it difficult to uh, land some new export sales in the waning days of the traditional U.S. export season as cheaper, newly harvested South American crops begin to flood the market. We did get word earlier this week that 45% of the soybean acres in Brazil have now been harvested. On some stretches of the Mississippi and Ohio rivers, barge operators have restricted the sizes of their tows and limited navigation to daylight hours only. One uh, uh, executive of the Iowa-based Soy Transportation Coalition said the Mississippi Gulf accounts for 60% of our exports, so it impedes our ability to get product to market. And from the standpoint of the March 1st deadline that uh, President Trump had set up for uh, a lifting of some of the trade tariffs, and if not, uh, that we would increase our tariffs on a Chinese trade, uh, we were going to go up to 25% tariffs on Chinese goods Friday, 1st of March. But uh, The president said yesterday, I have asked China to immediately remove all tariffs on our agricultural products, including beef, pork, soybeans, based on the fact that we are moving along nicely with trade discussions. That was on a Twitter sent out by President Trump. And Trump said, this is very important for our great farmers and for me. Well, we have markets to talk about, Sam says to share with you, all of that coming up on the second half of the Saturday morning show on Chicago's very own 720 WGN Chicago. And it's coming up on 25 minutes before 6 o'clock here on the Saturday morning show. Oh, one thing I did want to mention, you know, we think of farmers' markets in various communities in the Chicagoland area is only happening in the summertime? Not true. In my uh, town of Huntley, Illinois, in McHenry County, there will be an indoor farmer's market coming up today from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. It'll be indoors at the Legion Hall in Huntley. Your opportunity to uh, enjoy a farmer's market with snow on the ground 
And then, of course, later on, we'll get to the weekly outdoor shows. But just wanted to mention that in Huntley, Illinois, if you want a farmer's market indoors out of the cold, you'll find it today at the American Legion Hall. And uh, that will be uh, uh, an opportunity to get some produce that's fairly fresh. Farmer's market time. It'll give you a feeling for spring and summer as well. But right now, we say welcome to Samuelson Says. I'm Orion, and this week, talking about the fact that it's going to be your turn. This week, it's for all of you who have really wanted to write an agricultural newspaper column, because it's your turn. I don't really have anyone that I want to praise or pick on. I don't have one issue that is towering above other issues this week. So I'm looking to you to share some of your thoughts, or maybe frustrations, and then I can include them on an upcoming Samuelson Says. And first of all, let me give you the email address where you send your thoughts to me, and I'll be sure to get them. Orion at agbizweek.com O-R-I-O-N at agbizweek.com Now, there is one restriction. There are two topics I will not discuss on any Samuelson Says. Because years ago, I learned from my dad, there are two subjects you do not discuss with family or friends. Religion and politics. So, I will not share religious thoughts or political thoughts from you, but everything else is wide open. What are you concerned about? The income situation for farmers and ranchers? The weather for spring planting season? Trade issues that seem to never end with our trading partners around the world? And then, interestingly enough, I have received half a dozen emails this winter dealing with one subject. That subject is the future of county fairs and what can we do to ensure that county fairs will stay alive in our county. So that's an example of the topics. You may have your own, and I certainly don't want to limit you to those topics, and you can share whatever is on your mind. So once again, my email address O-R-I-O-N, Orion, at agbizweek, that's A-G-B-I-Z-W-E-E-K dot com, and I'll share some of your thoughts with my viewers on Samuelson Says. Samuelson Says, a presentation of Tribune Radio Networks, 20 minutes before 6 o'clock here on the Saturday morning show, And we are going to check in with Rich Nelson of Allendale in McHenry, Illinois, to get his thoughts on the current market situation involving agricultural products. So stay with us. We'll have that for you when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. Joining us this week in the studio is Rich Nelson, Chief Strategist for Allendale, based in McHenry, Illinois. I have to ask you first, do you speak Chinese or read Chinese? 
<laughs> I wish I did, especially <laughs> pronouncing a lot of these provinces, but no, I, I don't. So as an analyst, how much faith can you put in the numbers that we get from China, whether it be in soybeans or African swine fever? Certainly on the uh, on the latter, on the swine fever issue, there's a lot of questions for us right now. And, and honestly, this idea of whether we have a 20 percent uh, cut in China's uh, hog herd this year or not, maybe that's a little, uh, a little uh, on the exaggerated part of things here. But there's no doubt there are issues going on. There is a nationwide problem. The question that we have, certainly on the U.S. side, is wondering whether it's enough f- uh, to encourage active imports. So far, they do have procurement a little higher than last year, but nothing like what we had hoped or expected here, given all the stories we've heard. Is the concern on their part on the supply of pork for their own citizens uh, there? You know, I think in some respects that is true. And obviously they have a government policy, which uh, certainly uh, pushes those those viewpoints. However, we actually have had two other instances in recent years, 2007 with blue ear disease, which we call PERS. Also, uh, the past uh, 2016 uh, and 2015 years where government regulations cracked down on the small producers near those waterways and whatnot. So we've had instances in the past where we have seen production declines. Of interest, they only uh, offset those with imports, maybe 20 to 30 percent of that production decline. So I think we need to tail back our expectations right now. What of their imported commodities go into feeding their hogs? No, obviously, uh, as far as this goes, uh, soybean meal is the biggest driver there. Uh, they are not active uh, importers in a big way, at least as far as uh, U- as far as corn uh, annual imports, maybe three to five million tons. So this is really more of a soybean meal only issue for the most part. Do they import a lot of that corn in the form of DDGs? They used to, uh, in previous years, uh, certainly in the past uh, two to three years, with some government interference on uh, on issuing the permits uh, for importation. That is uh, really not too much of an import uh, issue for us right now. One of the issues in the trade disagreement is ethanol, because they have become a major importer of ethanol, have they not? You're certainly right. In the past, uh, in fact, in the last full year where we had uh, some free ethanol trading without the government interference, uh, they were our number one export buyer uh, of U.S. ethanol. So this had been an issue uh, perhaps in the coming years as the government mandates or if they do implement this plan for a nationwide uh, biofuel policy, maybe this will get a little more play in the next, uh, next few years here. We have focused so much on the China-U.S. trade disagreement that we've sort of overlook the fact we really don't have NAFTA 2 committed and confirmed yet. We have trade negotiations going with the European Union that could have major impact. How much do you look at those possibilities? These are issues for us to follow, and, and certainly we hope to get uh, further push and, and further movement into these uh, into these uh, areas. Also, I'd like to throw in there, uh, if we want some further agreements with Southeast Asia, the area of the world which does have clear economic growth beyond just a, a moribund 2 or 3%. So, yes, these are all issues that we need to focus on here overall. And Southeast Asia, again, primarily soybean and soybean byproducts? Or? 
Exactly right. And hopefully we can actually in, in, uh, increase their uh, domestic livestock herds as well and push into corn uh, imports and other, uh, other imports as well. So, yes, uh, for right now, they are more of a limited buyer, but uh, certainly coming years with a growth in per capita income and food choices, uh, we'll certainly hope to uh, increase our, our movement there. And, of course, we have to talk South America because they really are the biggest competitor in the world market, particularly on soybeans. But they also do a lot of corn sales, don't they? I certainly do. And this is uh, something which just 20 years ago was not an issue, was pretty much the U.S. and South Africa and, and perhaps uh, uh, portions of Eastern Europe. So no doubt about this, they have increased their presence on corn. And it is certainly is something that we have to watch very closely here. How much of a factor is Russia in the world trade situation? I know wheat, but Anything else? You know, for the most part, uh, aside from uh, energy products and whatnot, I think those are the, the issues where we do have some uh, concern for them. And like you mentioned, of course, uh, a lot of their play with, uh, with wheat has been a bit, uh, a bit of a surprise these past few years. And we seem to be still priced out of the world market with U.S. wheat. Yes, and the way it looks right now, we probably need to drop off another 10 to $15 per metric ton at the port. So on this one, uh, at this point, we still have some struggle with U.S. pricing. And one of the things I found fascinating is the fact that uh, they might start uh, importing some stuff from the East Coast into South America because of transportation. Certainly right. And that's always a big question for us. And, and how they exactly uh, juggle around their uh, their export responsibilities, I think that would be a big question, especially as we gear up these next few months into the heart of their export season. So a lot of questions for us. Uh, keep in mind for the soybean issue out of, out of Brazil, February to September, they're going to be running short versus last year's exports by about 5 million tons. And I see they're 45% complete on harvest. Exactly right. So we have their crop size for the most part figured out. Uh, this 114 to 117 million ton range for uh, Brazil's production. So at this point in time, this is a, a good crop, but uh, certainly down from expectations. I did get an email from a, a viewer this past week saying, why do you spend so much time talking about South America? Don't they harvest the same time we do in North America? They don't. No, and they have an exact, the, uh, an exact opposite season of us, and, and this is important for us, especially in the export side. We're more or less trade-off uh, export shares of, of uh, soybean exports throughout the world. So, yes, it is something we have to watch very closely, especially with not much action going on with U.S. crops for obvious reasons right now. We haven't talked much about poultry lately, and that is certainly a factor in the protein market. How are we doing there export-wise and, and consumption? For the most part, okay. My my actually more big uh, my bigger concern with poultry side is their relentless expansion, which continues to go on right now at a maybe more reduced pace than just, just a couple years ago. The problem we have is this relent relentless expansion. We've more or less maximized what the U.S. consumer can take, and now we're seeing wholesale chicken prices cut by fifteen to eighteen percent right now versus last year. So on this end, these countries have gotten, or these companies have gotten by, uh, focusing on the back end, the uh, the branded branded products, prepackaged chicken, those things. But certainly on the live and wholesale end, there are some struggles right now, which could be an issue for us on the hog side too. And vegetarians have they made an impact on consumption of the protein meats? So vegans and, and, and everything of the non-traditional meat-eating uh, diet, this all, all counts for near from 3 to 5% of the U.S. population. Maybe you could argue that's picked up 1% or so in the past year or two, but uh, at best. But uh, for the most part, 
we believe that we'll have two separate food items or food uh, supply systems right now, traditional as well as the, the non-meat, vegan, and everything else uh, separate. So, Rich, as we get ready, I hope, to move into the planting season, what advice are you giving producers now on how they handle this market situation? We do look for some challenges this coming spring. We've got the soil moisture problem across the entire Midwest, everything from Ohio and the, and the Ohio River, River, Valley, uh, River Valley, as well as uh, many areas in the western Corn Belt. Uh, given the current forecast for above normal rainfall this spring, we do look for planting concerns. And there will be some preventive plant issues also in many areas. So in that respect, we do look for a mild bump up in prices, get the corn back to 430 on the December contract. Soybeans may be touching $10, but uh, obviously that's not in the, in the cards for right now here. You think we'll see that bump in price in May like we did last year? I do think that uh, the planning issues will start it as a catalyst, and we might need something else to get us going to get those prices, yes. So do you suggest options to a lot of producers as the way to go? Yeah, we do, and it depends on the, on the producer themselves, what yeah. they want to put up for, uh, for uh, a risk uh, and other factors here, no doubt. <laughs> And we do seem to be expanding the use of risk management tools, are we not? I do think so. And even whether it's producers working with uh, brokerage firms directly like ourselves or using tools, not which are uh, a wide variety of options now offered through the uh, grain companies themselves. Yes, there is a wide variety now of tools. And in fact, even on the ag tech side, which is also involving marketing now as well, uh, there are many options to look at here. So looking ahead, big reports due out to the planting intentions, followed by planted acreage, and then we get into the monthly crop progress reports. How closely do you as an analyst watch those reports? Very closely. And one reason is, is this example right here. USDA's February conference numbers for acreage are always not that quite accurate. Uh, they've gotten the direction right for corn movement, uh, corn acres changes in the eight of the past 10 years. But for soybeans, they've only been right on the direction of bean plantings in five of the past 10 years. So that's why we feel uh, the various tools like our annual acreage survey going on right now certainly will help provide a bit more uh, insight into these uh, very big questions still in front of us. So let's talk about the Allendale survey, for example. Uh, that will end when and when will we get results? So it, it goes all the way through next Friday, and we'll have results here the following Wednesday the 13th. So this two-week-long survey across the nation, certainly invite everybody to help out here. How do they do that? Uh, very simple, call, uh, by either calling us, which is uh, 1-800-2-MARKET, or going on our website, allendale-inc.com. And take part in the survey. Certainly can, whether they want to talk with somebody or just do it themselves on the computer. We're happy to help. Our thanks to Rich... Nelson, Chief Strategist with Allendale, based in McHenry, Illinois. And in the closing minutes of our weekly Saturday morning show, I want to talk about a project that I've been slightly involved in for the past decade or two. It seems longer than that. But uh, I enjoy flying, as you know, and uh, do a lot of my traveling around the Midwest in a Cessna 210. And so flying has been a part of my life since 1984 in uh, general aviation. And uh, during that time at Poplar Grove Airport, north of Belvedere, Illinois, a program was developed and is going strong, and I just want to take a moment to mention it. It is the Poplar Grove 
Vintage Wings and Wheels Museum. My good friend Paul Wallum was one of the real movers and shakers in getting it started, and they put together a pretty good display of flying equipment and automotive equipment. You'll find a gasoline station going back decades that they've reconstructed on the grounds, and of course the hangar where they handle meetings and group gatherings and so on. They took a part from uh, the airport at Waukesha and moved it uh, totally to the uh, field at Poplar Grove, and it's still standing. So uh, anyway, they're getting ready to do their spring cleanup, and once they get that done, they will be open from May 4th to September 29th. May 4th through September 29th, for the Poplar Grove Vintage Wings and Wheels Museum. Now here, they're open Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday during the summer. And Thursday hours, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., the same for Friday and Saturday. And then Sunday hours are 12 noon to 3 p.m., starting May 4th through September 29. So if you're a fan of old-time automotive products and airplanes, Poplar Grove, north of Belvedere, Illinois, this summer will be a good stop for you. Also, uh, this week is something uh, in a program that we've been following for years. National Farm Medicine Center, based at Marshfield, Wisconsin. And uh, this week, the Medicine Center named a new director, Cap Bendixson, a Ph.D. research scientist specializing in social cultural anthropology, named director of the National Farm Medicine Center. That's part of the Marshfield Clinic Research Institute. He'll take over, well, on Monday. And he had joined the uh, Farm Medicine Center in 2013. They have done a great deal of work on health problems that affect farmers and ranchers and uh, also uh, health problems that happen to kids who grow up on a farm. And so uh, we'll look forward to working with the new director of the National Farm Medicine Center in Marshfield, Wisconsin. And at the University of Illinois this week, they uh, announced they're moving ahead with the Feed Technology Center. The University of Illinois entered a public-private partnership to build a new Feed Technology Center. The facility will be capable of delivering 8,000 tons of specialized small-batch research diets per year, And along with that, they'll do numerous interdependent capabilities integrated to provide full system services. And researchers in the Department of Animal Science at the U of I, as well as other units across the country, will use the facility to prepare and test animal feed ingredients. The Feed Technology Center will also serve as a launch pad for bigger picture work designed to advance precision animal agriculture throughout the industry. And that's uh, on the campus at the University of Illinois. And speaking of agricultural colleges, uh, I'll be heading to Washington this coming week. 
to appear at an annual meeting that will be attended by deans of colleges of agriculture and university presidents. Don't know what this kid who milk cows in Wisconsin in his childhood is doing there, talking to a group such as this, but I'm looking forward to it. That'll be Tuesday night in Washington, D.C. So, Our thanks to you, as always, for joining us here on the Saturday Morning Show. Our thanks to Bob Ferguson, who is back spinning the dials and turning on the switches that make all of this happen. And, of course, keep in mind we're with you throughout the week on a daily basis doing up-to-the-minute market reports from Wall Street to the fields of Kansas wheat and the livestock feeding operations of California and Arizona. Our topic every Saturday morning is to talk about what really affects everybody on the planet, the production of food and making the availability of food at the same time preserving the environment all happen on the farms and ranches across the United States. So thank you very much, and thanks to Bob Ferguson, as we said. He does a good job here for us every Saturday morning. And again, thanks to you for joining us. Orion Samuelson keeps you connected to the world of business and agriculture on WGN. Hear his reports weekday mornings on the Steve Cochran Show and during the noon hour on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Plus, catch Orion and Max on Saturday mornings at 5 a.m. only on Chicago's WGN Radio 720.